I really appreciate the things that he says. I appreciate that he takes the time to listen to his consistent. Cat got I your appreciate- tongue. He's Nimbus. He's Nimbus. Would, would somebody take a screenshot, please, of the hangout with my cat just chilling here? Because somebody, this needs to get posted on. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we got the whole crew joining us today. Uh, Joining us again is Luke Boggs. Luke, how you doing? I'm doing great, Kyle. Happy to be here. And back again is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Just, you know, living life. And rounding out the panel for us today is Ben Stout. Ben, how's it going? It's going well. Uh, Georgia's recruiting class continues to look up, and the Braves will be heading north out of Florida uh, up here to start the season soon, so things are looking up. Yes, things are definitely looking up, although probably not looking up for the Braves, given that Bryce Harper is not leaving the NL East. Um, Let's move on. Yeah, (laughs) we'll we'll move on from that. Um, So on this week's show... First, the culture wars are back. Now that the Super Bowl has come and gone, lawmakers have introduced a series of bills outlawing abortion, creating legal protections for some exercise of religious beliefs that critics call a license to discriminate, and allowing public money to be spent at private schools. But these bills have faced resistance from Democrats and some Republicans, so we'll discuss a tough week for the state's social conservatives. Then lawmakers are also considering taking control of the Atlanta airport from the city, and city leaders are digging in in opposition. Will this bill make it out of the Senate before crossover day? And uh, to wrap things up today, we are going to talk about the place of a couple of Georgians and a couple of high-profile issues that Congress is dealing with right now. Last week, the U.S. House passed legislation mandating comprehensive background checks for gun sales an issue close to the heart of new Georgia Congresswoman Lucy McBath. And both Georgia Senators David Perdue and Johnny Isaacson are at the center of a debate in the Senate to nullify the president's emergency declaration aimed at securing money not appropriated by Congress for the president's border wall. Um, So that is a lot to get to today. But let's start with these new uh, bills in the House and Senate dealing with abortion restrictions and uh, religious liberty legislation. So you may remember informal instructions to Republican lawmakers that they not introduce bills that would garner bad headlines in advance of the Super Bowl. That time appears to have passed. Uh, In the last week, we've seen two bills introduced that would limit abortion access and another new version of RIFRA. Uh, But introducing these bills is not passing them. And almost immediately, uh, it seemed that leadership in the legislature was seeking to bottle up the ambitions of social conservatives. Um, Let's start with the two abortion bills at hand here. Um, there, There's two bills here, one that's introduced by a Republican from Ackworth, Ed Setzler. It's uh, known as the heartbeat bill, and it effectively bans abortion at six weeks, which uh, effectively bans abortion almost entirely, given that many women do not know that they are pregnant at six weeks. That bill was heard in the House Health and Human Services Committee today, uh, but some of the reporting indicates that that bill is less of a priority for leadership than the second abortion bill that is on the table here, and that is a bill that is backed by Governor Kemp that sets a trigger 
for the outlawing of abortion in the state of Georgia if the Supreme Court overturns the central holding in Roe v. Wade. Megan, let's start with your reaction to both of these bills. What what are your thoughts as this debate over abortion emerges in the legislature? I find it pretty interesting. I think the thing that I find most interesting is the fact that the trigger bill is essentially a way for Kemp to sit on his hands a bit. Um, the heartbeat bill is super stringent and women's rights activists um, would definitely agree with me when I say that it is far too stringent and it violates rights. Um, but the trigger bill really in Georgia just doesn't do anything unless something significant changes with the federal uh, Roe v. Wade situation. So I, I'm interested to see what happens if Kemp actually um, I know he supports it, but if it'll if it goes forward and how things look, yeah, Luke. Um, you know we've we've discussed sort of the constitutional place for abortion before, uh, particularly as Brett Kavanaugh was elevated to the Supreme Court. the The key here to the trigger bill is that the Supreme Court one of two things have to happen for this bill to basically go into effect. Either the Supreme Court has to Uh, overturn the central holding of Roe v. Wade, or the Congress has to pass a constitutional amendment allowing states to ban abortion. And then if one of those two things happens, that sets up a vote in the state legislature on a resolution to ban abortion in the state. Um, Is that an outcome that you think is likely to happen? I don't think it's likely for the Supreme Court to uh, overrule Roe v. Wade outright, and I also don't think that this Congress or any Congress is going to be able to successfully pass a constitutional amendment on the abortion question and then get it approved by the requisite number of states. Um, so um, that that being uh, said, the, the main reason I don't think they're going to just outright outlaw abortion is because they have a much easier path that they've been going down ever since Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is basically the case that said, like, you can't outlaw abortion and you can't put undue burden on people receiving abortions. But undue burden is very undefined. And, you know, one court's definition of undue burden could be very different than another court's, uh, you know, undue burden. And so I think uh, seeing how the Roberts court has operating on some other issues similar to abortion and on abortion, I, I predict they will just nibble uh, it, you know, their way down through abortion so that they don't outright say that, oh yeah, abortion's legal everywhere, but they'll let states uh, put a lot of burdens onto it. Ben, uh, Governor Kemp campaigned, particularly in the Republican primary, uh, with a pledge to pass the toughest abortion restrictions in the nation. Do you think that this trigger bill that he supports meets that test? Do you think he's fulfilling his promise here? Or if you don't, do you think that there is a future in the legislature for a tougher abortion ban than the trigger bill? Uh, I don't think that the that the trigger bill would meet that uh, requirement. And I'm answering that not from a uh, from a perspective of what would I like to see, but just an objective perspective of is that the toughest uh, legislation that is out there on abortion, obviously, no, it's not because it does nothing right now. And then the second being that um, that he has specifically committed not just to tough legislation, but he did commit to, to being supportive of the heartbeat bill um, uh, or a bill similar to that. And so um, that's what the first piece of legislation dropped by Representative Setzler does. Um, and so I would like to see the, the governor support that. Um, obviously, uh, they're, they're um, among circles were rumors down there. 
that a floor leader uh, was going to drop uh, that piece of legislation uh, for Governor Kemp in the Senate. That did not end up happening. My conversations with um, the Kemp administration um, have basically led to what they're concerned with is that is that should you pass the heartbeat bill, it would be immediately uh, challenged in the courts. And so making sure that every I was dotted, every T was crossed, and every piece of portion of that legislation was secured for a legal challenge. Also, my understanding is there was a $4 million price tag that needed to be appropriated for the legal fees of fighting that bill, uh, or fighting that court case. And so um, obviously the governor did not feel comfortable enough with where that bill was at to have a poor leader carry it. Um, the other piece of legislation that has been introduced along similar lines is a reemergence of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. On the campaign trail, Kemp campaigned on signing a mirrored version of the federal RIFRA that was passed and signed by President Clinton in 1993. But groups that oppose the federal version of RIFRA now often cite a different climate uh, that this bill is coming into versus what was supported, what what received bipartisan support in the early 1990s. Um, Megan, what do you think about the reemergence of the RIFRA debate? I don't think it's good for Georgia. Uh, I definitely think that any sort of religious freedom type bill is, it's a so-called religious freedom bill, right? It's religious freedom for Christians to refuse service to people is ultimately what that bill amounts to. I don't think it's good for the state. I think it's going to lose us a lot of business. I know Delta does not support it. I know a lot of other large businesses in especially the Atlanta area have said that they're going to back out if they're, if RIFRA is enforced in Georgia. So I'm just hoping that that gets shut down quickly. Ben, uh, conservatives, I think, would, would take a different view. But I think what has gotten a little bit lost in this debate is what problem the RIFRA bill in its various incarnations is attempting to solve. So from a conservative perspective, why does the state need RIFRA legislation? Yeah, uh, the RIFRA that was originally passed under the Clinton administration provides those protections to government employees, but only federal government employees. It was uh, upheld in the courts that, that if states want to give those protections to their state employees, that they have to pass it uh, through their house of uh, through their state legislatures, and so those protections that that Christians and the the as you said the writers seeking uh, are, are trying to get those protections for, uh, for state employees as opposed to just federal employees. Uh, also, I think that the the argument that this is going to be bad for business is a is a little bit silly. I think that that you would see an uproar on the left, and then as a result, that uh, you might see some some virtue signaling by businesses. But I mean, let's be honest. You've got Florida. Alabama, South Carolina, Mississippi, Virginia, um, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Illinois. I mean, you've got all these states out there that have a state RIFRA, and yet you don't see businesses fleeing those states and running like there's a r robot on the loose. So, so I think it's a little silly to say that um, we can't pass this piece of legislation because uh, big business isn't in support of it. Also, I'm against principally on principle saying that we should or should not pass a legislation based on what big business wants to see when we're dealing with social things. I think that I think that whenever it comes to legislation that deals with taxes or business climate, that uh, I'm in support of a business coming to the, uh, to the table and, and expressing that. But as Governor Deal said, even when he vetoed the bill, that he didn't respond well, uh, didn't appreciate the threats coming from big business and that uh, they needed to just stay in their lane. Um, Luke, on these bills, sort of as a batch, 
Um, the future doesn't look particularly bright for any of them. Maybe the future is brightest for the abortion trigger bill. But when the refer bill was introduced, the sponsor of the bill almost immediately canceled a scheduled committee hearing. I, I think it was technically postponed, but the implication of postponing the committee hearing as we are coming up against the deadline of crossover day on Thursday is that at least through a normal channel, the refer bill is not going to advance at this point in time. Jim Galloway laid out really eloquently, as he as he usually does in his column, uh, that the winds were kind of shifting against social conservatives this week, that it felt, or at least it felt that way, given the uh, canceled committee hearing on RIFRA, the favoring of the trigger bill over the heartbeat abortion bill. Um, and then there was also another really high-profile bill uh, dealing with private school vouchers uh, that failed on the Senate floor. Uh, we're recording on Wednesday night, so it failed on Tuesday afternoon. What are your thoughts on this emerging dynamic of the social conservatives having a harder time getting their priorities prioritized uh, in a legislature that's still Republican majority and in, in a state that's still led by a Republican governor? I think it is a sign that the Republican majority would like to remain the Republican majority uh, because, you know, the dynamic that I've seen play out is almost the opposite of what I, I saw play out before the election because I spent a lot of time at the Gold Dome during Georgia's legislative session and typically around campaign time, what you would see is a lot of red meat bills like this get shammed through the uh, legislature without a lot of thought because they had the impression that this is a great bill to go out and campaign on and even if they you know the governor's gonna veto it let's get it passed through so we can all say we pass rifra and be happy and pat ourselves on the back and now they're starting to see that the democratic electorate is getting just as energized as the republican electorate and it's putting many of them at risk uh you know of losing their seats and so i think what we're seeing here is this is near the middle of session as far as how much stuff happens. Crossover day is a big point. And in other years where they were less concerned about who's watching them and, you know, what red meat bills they're passing, I think they would pass this through. But since they are more concerned about it, I think trying to meet this like time deadline of between Super Bowl and crossover day was just too tight of a crunch for controversial bills to get through. And so I, I think what we're seeing here is, as Galway says, a lot of caution, but also uh, a lot of uh, crunch timelines as well for these bills. So I think that's why uh, they're going down at the moment. And I'll be really curious to see what uh, we see next session from these bills if they do die. Yeah, I think I think it's just this continuation of this ongoing tension where Republican candidates, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, Republican candidates almost across the board in Republican primaries take these hardline positions, Kemp saying that he would sign RIFRA, that he would sign the toughest abortion restrictions in the country. But it's not just Kemp. I, I mean, I think routinely up and down the ballot, uh, no matter what state legislative district you're in, your Republican candidate, at least in the primary, typically supports some of these social conservative positions. What what is the like path forward for social conservatives been to to having their issues taken seriously? Is this a failure of persuasion or are there Republicans in office that that may that maybe social conservatives think should not be there? 
Yeah, I think that the the path forward is just having leadership that's that's bold and strong on this issue. So, um, and I don't think that it's just the heartbeat bill or it's the um, abortion uh, restriction after uh, you know a change uh, from the Supreme Court or it's this uh, educational choice bill. I don't think it's any of the three. I think it's what we're seeing is a symptom of the whole. And what that symptom of the whole is is that there's a vacuum. Um, I don't want to say a vacuum of leadership. That's a little strong. Is that the leadership within the Capitol right now is still trying to to take that role? And what I mean by that is is that uh, uh, SB one seventy three, this is the Educational Choice Bill, had the backing of the governor and the lieutenant governor. So you had the governor's floor leaders, uh, Senator Strickland, um, Senator T- uh, Tillery, among just uh, among others, uh, who voted yes for the bill. The lieutenant governor supported the bill, and yet you had the Senate pro tem Butch Miller uh, uh, voting no, and you had Senators Beach, Senator Mullis, um, some uh, some heavy hitters within the Senate uh, voting excused on this. And so I think that what the situation is, is that specifically on educational choice, you could see that legislation pass with maybe some stronger or more present or prepared leadership. But I think uh, I think that... Um, that especially for, for Governor Kemp, uh, he had to spend the first half of his, um, you know, governor-elect period, pr- you know, proving, you know, justifying that he was elected correctly, as opposed to preparing for his governance duties and, and getting the staff together and getting their plans together. And so I think that that shortened the timeline for them to be prepared for the session. And I think as a result, there, there's a vacuum. I spoke with a... Um, with a lobbyist who has uh, 13 years experience under the gold dome, very high profile, and was saying that uh, that this is the most uh, unorganized session that uh, that they have ever seen, that there's just a vacuum and that nobody really knows what's going on. And I think that's because uh, the, the governor and lieutenant governor being changed at the same time, the first time that has happened since Lieutenant Governor uh, Cagle was first elected, and, um, and it's uh, created a lot of confusion down at the Capitol. Um, any closing thoughts from anybody on uh, the winds shifting against social conservatives? Besides me banging my head in a wall over here? <laughs> or besides me being very happy about it? <laughs> I, too, have found it very interesting that Kemp and his folks haven't seemed to be pushing a stronger agenda. Like, Kemp's had a couple items, like the teacher pay raises and the mega keg waiver issue that like he's really been out on the front of and i feel like he's the one leading but a lot of these other conversations i I would agree kemp you know will weigh in sometimes but it doesn't really seem to be guiding it and that just in general from my friends in the legislature elected and not uh everything i've heard is this is a really crazy kind of disorganized session and so i wonder if that's like the new normal or if it's just like everybody you know figuring out where the bathrooms are and getting used to being governor and being used to being lieutenant governor I think it's going to be option two there. And I do believe that both the governor and the lieutenant governor would sign all three of the bills that we're talking about and do support them. I think that they haven't done so vocally for one reason or another. Um, but I, I don't think that the leadership support there, I think it's the actual leadership of getting the votes and making it happen and understanding the process and how to do that and having the will and the capacity to do that. I think that's what we're talking about. Here. Ben, ben, are you suggesting that Brian Kemp and his team don't know how to count votes? No, I'm so, I'm so, uh, <laughs> I'm not talking about counting votes. No, 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 no. Count. I, I want to be clear. I'm not like saying they don't know basic arithmetic. I'm not insulting them in that way. I'm just saying like the like actual like vote gigging work of like talking to people and getting them to commit and like having a count. Like, is that what you're talking about? The whipping. Yeah, the whipping of the the plebeians.
I'm saying that the floor leaders, uh, that the governor's floor leader supported the bill and that the bill didn't get through and that you didn't see that a lot in the previous administration. A very diplomatic answer. <laughs> I think, well, Ben, you're right on the on two out of the three. I really think the heartbeat bill is a stretch too far, even for Kemp. He may personally believe in it, but I think that he risks a lot by passing something like that if he wants to keep Republicans voting for him. Maybe. I mean, but what, three other states so far this legislative cycle have already done it? So We'll see. We're Georgia. Yeah. We're turning purple. Uh, I, I We've think been that turning is... purple ever since we turned red. <laughs> well, I think that is, though, the illustration of the challenge for Republicans, just to wrap this up here, is you you have to campaign hard right in the primary, but almost immediately upon winning the general election, the reality of a, even if it's a 52-48 Republican state, starts to sink, starts to sink in for Republicans that you don't have a lot of room to operate on some of these issues, but you also can't win Republican primaries without campaigning on the hard right. And so it's, it's a tough square to circle for Republicans. And I, I'm just interested in how long the base of the Republican Party continues to allow their elected officials to get away with this, um, or or if the pressure becomes so much that Republican elected officials feel like, oh, they can't get away with it anymore, and so they pass a bill that pleases the thirty percent of their base, um, but doesn't, but it, but is a hard sell in a general election. I, I I think the the problem for social conservatives and um, for hard right Republicans mirrors the problem that President Trump has on the federal level um, in terms of pleasing his base, but that being almost in direct contradiction to what larger majorities of people want to see. I mean, I think that the 30% made their voice clear when they elected uh, Governor Kemp over a Governor Cagle and when they elected a Governor Duncan over a Governor um, Schaefer, uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Schaefer. I think that they were saying that we, we don't like the status quo and we want the, our uh, priorities, these what we're talking about here, uh, actually push forward. And um, unfortunately, it doesn't look like uh, for this session that'll be enough. Well, Governor Eric Erickson will get the job done. <laughs> um, one thing to note before we leave the uh, topic of abortion here is that uh, we found out in the middle of recording that the the House Health and Human Services Committee did pass the heartbeat bill out of committee uh, this evening. Uh, they were having a hearing most of the afternoon on the heartbeat bill. And I believe coming up after that is the trigger bill that Kemp supports. Um, but the heartbeat bill, uh, while it may not be the favored bill of leadership, it is moving forward in the committee process and may end up on the rules calendar for crossover day on Thursday. So uh, listeners, you will find that out uh, after hearing the show and we'll find out and update you later. All right. Uh, so let's move on to our second topic for the week. So, a multi-year effort for the state legislature to take over control of the Atlanta airport is gaining steam ahead of crossover day. Last week, Senator Burt Jones introduced legislation that would create a governing authority to oversee operations at the airport. Supporters of the measure cite recent federal investigations into city hall procurement processes and other embarrassments for the airport going back to the 1990s. But the city of Atlanta, which currently owns the airport, is digging in in opposition Mayor Bottoms is accusing lawmakers of trying to steal the property of Atlanta away from the city and says that the city will not consent to a state takeover of the airport. 
Um, Luke, let's start with you on this issue. This this was like a, a tough issue for me to like prepare for. This almost seems like an internal food fight uh, between the state and the largest city in the state. Um, but what what to you is like impactful about the idea that the state may take over uh, Hartsfield Jackson? I think my first thought is just like surprise that this is happening now and that this hasn't been like a continuing debate. I mean, maybe it has been. I just don't live in Atlanta, so I don't hear about it. You know, things don't happen accidentally, right? Like there's a reason Governor Deal didn't do this. And there's a reason that Governor Kemp is allowing these conversations to, you know, be taken seriously. I would say he he may be allowing them to move forward, but he has been noncommittal either way about the future of this bill. Right. And it's good to note that. But my, my initial reaction is, I think had someone made this suggestion when Governor Deal was governor and when uh, Kasim Reeg was mayor, I don't think this conversation would have happened. And I think as far as, you know, Kemp trying to build a positive relationship with the mayor of Atlanta, this is an incredibly bad foot to start out on. Because even if it's a good idea, uh, it's going to be, this is not going to be a good conversation. And it, as far as like to do in beginning of your relationship with, with another elected, it's probably not a great idea. I think Luke's hitting the nail on the head there, which is that Governor Kemp obviously was making an effort to, to start the relationship off on a good foot with uh, with Mayor Bottoms. Uh, within the first couple of weeks of kind of the transition team, it was reported that he walked down to City Hall and went to her office to have a meeting with her, kind of making that gesture of I'll come to you. And uh, and since then, his China has held the joint meetings when, when talking about the Super Bowl together and talking about the storms. It seemed like their teams were working well together. Uh, this is something that Senator Jones has been working on for, for many years now. I think it is appalling, maybe putting it a little strong, but definitely concerning that the airport, the largest economic driver here in the state of Georgia, is controlled by one person. It, it is not funneled through. It is not controlled by the city council. The the airport is controlled by the mayor. The mayor makes all final calls. It's not a vote for the city council. The mayor makes every call, final call for the airport. I don't think that's healthy. Um, I think that uh, that a change there definitely needs to be made. We can talk about the politics of it, but when we're talking about good governance, one person should not control the biggest economic driver in the state of Georgia. The I think it's interesting to note here that the legislation that is currently being debated, which is certainly not finalized in any way, but it it appeared to at least briefly not necessarily solve that one person problem uh, because there were additional appointments made to the hypothetical state authority that would oversee the board um, and that the governor himself would control the majority of the appointments to the board. So there were some critics of this legislation who said that if the governor controls the majority of appointments, that ultimately the governor is a single person controlling the the fate of the airport. All right. So here's the thing with this. This a bill like this is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The issue that we're facing here is that there seem to be some campaign contributions and some undue influence and essentially just some corruption concerns um, related to the airport. But the airport is known as the world's busiest airport. I flew through there the other night when the weather was awful and things were still up and running and running smoothly as much as they could as far as like being able to get planes off the ground and stuff. So 
the airports are a good thing. It's a really good thing for Atlanta. It's a really good thing for Georgia. And if you feel like there are leadership problems with it, or you feel like there is some money influencing it that maybe shouldn't be, then maybe what we need to do is tighten up some corruption laws rather than say, okay, well, we're just going to completely overhaul the airport and change this thing that's working. We're not changing who's managing it, the actual managers or the day-to-day operations. We're just saying that uh, when you go through the process of who are the vendors, right? So who are the restaurants and how do they uh, end up there and all of the different processes of the money that goes behind the airport, that it goes in front of an authority like the Ports Authority as opposed to all funneling to one individual. Nobody wants to upend the airport. Everybody agrees. Like I said, it's the number one economic driver in Georgia, but it shouldn't all be funneled back to one person. And I don't think that's throwing... We're not saying let's shut it down or relocate it or we're not trying to throw the baby, i.e. the airport out with the bathwater. We're trying to just say, let's get this funnel to an authority as opposed to one person. Right. But it's still fixing a problem that isn't an actual problem. The problem isn't the airport. The problem isn't, the problem is the corruption, period. And, and, and funneling the, uh, the decision making for the airport to a group of people as opposed to one person solves the corruption issue. And that's the well, goal of this. This is, I, I think this is uh, the thread of this conversation that I'm actually most interested in is progressives you so so this seems to be a a partisan issue right now and i think the partisan issue or the partisan division here really falls along the lines of a democratic led city um is having something that they currently own and operate taken away from them from a republican led state government uh, but progressives and and particularly people on the left have also raised a lot of concern about the influence of campaign contributions and corporate campaign money. Um, And it is true that vendors who may have a contract before the airport or or maybe vying for a contract to sell their food and whatever they're selling at the airport donated heavily in the mayor's race. And and the current mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, was the largest beneficiary um, at least during the early stages of the race, uh, because she was the one endorsed by Mayor Reed. She was the front runner. Luke, do you think that Democrats or progressives need to take more seriously the issue, the issues around procurement and the influence of corporate money and how procurement is done that that at least creates an appearance of, of corruption? I think the appearance of corruption is just as dangerous as corruption itself. Uh, the Supreme Court agrees with me on that in theory, but uh, not, not in practice. Uh, I, I my my whole like view with this, because like I feel like we're talking about two things, right? Because I started this topic on talking about Nathan Deal and Kasim Reed's relationship. I don't know a lot about the Atlanta airport. The first you know, time I've heard about this issue is because of the fact that, you know, we were talking about and reading over the notes and the stories about it. My initial reaction, though, is that there's a way to pursue this that would have been more productive and probably would come out with a better resolution of the issue than what the current path has been. Because unfortunately, whether it's true or not, I'm not putting this on the Republicans who have introduced this legislation, but it's very easy for Democrats to think this is a screw the libs. And that, like you said, that this is going to be a Republican government taking something away from a Democratic one. And it is not hard for them to say we're doing this because screw the libs. So I think to do that, um, it would have been, you know, to actually get this done and deal with these problems, 
it would have been far more advantageous for the legislators and the governor especially to have a conversation with Lance Bottoms and try to come up with a measure that both parties could be supportive of. So that's the Atlanta situation. Now, the larger situation, yes, I think corruption in politics is as old as politics, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't take an active and constant effort into seeking uh, better systems to make corruption less likely and make people who uh, do things that are corrupt be you know caught and uh, held account for that is what our federal counterparts are doing uh, right now and I think it's something that our state counterparts could uh, really learn a lot from um, I'll just close this out by giving my sort of plug on on the other issue at play here this is not the exact same thing as a state preemption law um, but there is a, a movement that seems to come to a head most between conservative-led state governments and large democratic-led, liberal-led city governments where on issues like minimum wage, on paid leave requirements, on um, the the home sharing and ride sharing, your Airbnbs and your Ubers, um, and on some issues related to taxes, You've seen this movement among conservative state governments to restrict the ability of local city governments, county governments, whatever the case may be, restricting their authority to make decisions on their own. Um, Georgia is not the worst in this respect. We have uh, preemption laws on uh, limits on minimum wage increases and on paid leave requirements and limits on ride sharing like Uber. Uh, but some of the worst states here, the one that stands out to me is North Carolina, where you have a lot of fights between Charlotte and the state government in Raleigh. Um, interestingly, you had a similar fight between Charlotte and lawmakers in Raleigh over the a proposal to take over the Charlotte airport. And one of the things that actually stopped that fight was the FAA saying that they were not going to honor these ownership transfers unless unless all parties here agreed to the ownership transfer. So this may be the biggest hurdle um, for uh, proponents of the state taking over the airport. But I, I do think that there is this larger discussion that needs to be had on the issue of preemption laws and on whether or not city governments have the authority to do things like require higher minimum wages within their city limits. And I think to a certain extent, I mean, you you may have seen the high watermark of Republican control of state government and, and basically the way people, the, the distribution of the way people live, cities themselves tend to be more progressive, but state governments tend to be more conservative. But, but I do think that this is a place where uh, Republicans who have mostly preached about local control and the importance of that are stepping in to to basically restrict what local governments can do. I, I, I think it's a concerning trend uh, going forward. All right, so let's move on to our next topic. So last week, a bipartisan coalition in the U.S. House passed a bill mandating universal background checks for gun purchases. And this bill closes a loophole that allows unlicensed sellers to sell guns without conducting the check. The House effort is in many ways the culmination of six years of work for Georgia's own uh, Representative Lucy McBath, who was inspired to become a gun safety activist and later a member of Congress because of her son's murder in 2012. Uh, but the evidence suggests that a measure 
that the measure approved by the House will have a limited effect on gun deaths and that the proposal is unlikely to get heard in the Senate and is opposed by the president. So it's unclear what the concrete impact of passing this bill will be. Um, So let's talk about this bill and what is next for Congress on guns. Megan, let's start with you. What what do you think that this means for uh, Lucy McBath to have gone through such a trying personal event um, and to have it culminate with her becoming an activist, becoming a member of Congress? I feel like this is at least a partial personal victory. There's not going to be anything that's going to feel like a true victory to her. I don't think just because can I, I just can't even imagine being her in her situation and having lost a child to gun violence. Um, but I do think that this is what she was driving at. And as far as the work that she personally could do with her hands on it to drive this this measure, she's done it. And so that's a well done for her. Luke, this bill, although it is the culmination of many years of work of Lucy McBass, of other activists who have pursued um, gun restrictions in Congress, uh, particularly the biggest push in what what I would consider our time in the in the post Columbine era or the post Sandy Hook era. This bill is probably not going to get taken up by the Senate, and President Trump has explicitly opposed the bill. So I think the assumption is that he would veto the bill. What is next for Democrats in securing more expansive gun control policies? One of the biggest mistakes Democrats have made on issues like gun control is that we tend to get afraid of them and then we don't like to talk about them because we see like a backlash happen um, with them. And then we, you know, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, there's a lot of races where Democrats felt like, oh, we lost because of guns. And so we stopped talking about it. We just got to keep talking about it because... And, you know, I'm sure Ben would back me up on this, that one of the reasons Republicans do so well on their issues is they will not shut up about them. They will always talk about them all the time at any venue. And they have very consistent positions that they are constantly pushing us, you know, pushing the country and the state more towards. So I think if Democrats want to see uh, their positions advocated for consistently and make progress on them, they have to not be afraid of talking about them because you're not going to see, uh, you know, public opinion change on a topic unless you are actually asking the public to change its opinion. Ben, uh, what are your thoughts? Do you think Democrats should also keep talking about gun control? Uh, I thought this would get a resounding yes. <laughs> no, I mean... Uh, I think that oh, okay to to I because I, I think Kyle may have given you a question that is so broad. I'll give you a more specific follow up question. If we want to have policy success on the issue of guns, uh, from a Democratic perspective, you don't have to endorse that perspective. Do you think a good strategy is to continue to talk about it? Yes, I think a good strategy to pass legislation is to talk about it. I also think <laughs> Thank a you. good strategy, especially in these southern states. Uh, to lose votes and lose moderate voters is to continue to talk about gun legislation. Um, I also think a good strategy to get reelected is to be able to provide constituent services, which Congresswoman Macbeth is still unable to do. Kudos for her for passing a bill that won't be heard while her constituents in the 6th District remain unserved. Some of the pushback that I've seen is that this is the first major 
gun control legislation to pass the House in, I don't even know how long, maybe a couple of decades. I don't know that there was a major restriction passed when Democrats controlled the House from 2007 through the 2010 elections. Um, But it is not, this is not some revolutionary policy that is going to end all gun violence in this country. It is a relatively limited measure that evidence suggests will have a limited impact on the number of people who die because of gun violence. And Democrats pursued this bill while talking about really big ideas on other things. They're talking about Medicare for all on healthcare. They're talking about a Green New Deal on climate change. They're talking about reorienti- reorienting the nation's entire economy to combat climate change and limit corporate influence. And on guns, they're talking about a background check bill. Do you guys think that Democrats need a bigger vision on guns? Yes and no. I think that, and take this for what you will, because I think as I've established on this podcast before, I actually like guns. Um, I really think that there should be stronger controls. And I think a background check is a bite-sized piece that can start the creation of more controls. It can be the basis for for more controls. Um, And with it coming in bite sizes, to me, it feels a little bit more controllable. It feels a little bit more like these measures may actually be able to stack and complement each other to a point where maybe more people can be comfortable with them, maybe more moderates, maybe people who do enjoy guns, but like me are okay with, you know, take my DNA, take my history, whatever you want, just let me shoot. Um, Obviously in safe ways, just add that caveat. Um, So I, I actually think that this is an okay way to do it. I understand the idea that some people are saying that we need to push for more as progressives and as Democrats, but I think bite sizes might be okay. Look at Megan shooting from the hip on this issue. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Luke, what do you think? Do Democrats need a bigger vision or um, do you think the bite sized way is the right way here? Long term, it, it would be good to start having those conversations because I feel like the uh, expanding gun ownership conversation is pretty thoroughly done and I don't really know what a larger vision would look like and so I think it's always valuable to have policy debate and conversation even if it uh, is not the direction that the party ends up going uh, my my initial thought is that background checks are something that theoretically Republicans could get behind they have in other states they've almost gotten behind it before on a federal level and so I feel like as far as actually doing the job of being a congressperson and getting a piece of legislation passed through two chambers and signed by the president and becoming a law uh, I think background checks is a good issue and a good topic to, to start with. I don't know. I'm waiting for the big idea conversation to come to guns. Um, I mean, some of the bigger ideas that are out there, Australia years ago instituted a mandatory buyback program. Australia doesn't have a Second Amendment like we have, so um, they they had some room to have some mandatory provisions to require some people to sell back their guns to the government to basically take guns out of society. Um, I I do think that the the conversation of the big idea is going to turn on whether or not Democrats can commit themselves to significantly reducing to the point of almost eliminating gun violence to, 
almost eliminating people who die by suicide because they have guns when they're, you know, maybe in a mental state where they should not have guns to uh, homicides for people who are violent and who have access to guns. If, if Democrats want to lay down a line that that is a goal to virtually eliminate gun violence in this country, I think they have to think bigger. And I think they have to think in a way that puts the second amendment on the table. Uh, because I, I don't think it, given the constitutional framework, I don't think that without a serious conversation on significant changes to the second amendment, you can reach the goal of significantly reducing gun deaths. Now, if the goal is smaller, if the goal is just ensuring that people are exercising their second amendment responsibly, then a lot of these smaller changes, I think do accomplish that goal, but they're not going to reduce school shootings. They're not going to reduce some of the common, more everyday gun violence that happens and and I think that that's where eventually Democrats are going to have to pick between a larger vision and a larger goal or a smaller vision and a smaller goal. Um, but, you know, that conversation is certainly going to be uh, shaped by the politics of the issue. Right. Well, and I think that what you said is true, but I also think that just because we are able to pass or you know, just depending on what happens, are maybe not able to pass this now. That doesn't mean that a larger conversation won't occur. This, you know, I don't think anyone is saying that we're just going to stop at universal background checks. You know, that that's the problem <laughs> for you. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think that's a good place to wrap that discussion. Um, let's let's turn to one more thing before we go here, and that is uh, the ongoing debate in the Senate over uh, whether or not to block. President Trump's emergency declaration. Um, So next week, the Senate is expected to join the House in approving a measure to rescind President Trump's emergency declaration. As of today, four Republican senators have announced that they will join Democrats in overturning the president's emergency. Uh, But Georgia has both of our senators close to this discussion by the virtue of the fact that Senator Isaacson is a senior member of the chamber and Senator Perdue maintains a really close relationship with President Trump. Um, So let's discuss their roles here and what comes next for the president's emergency declaration. The thing that caught our eye about this topic was an article by Tamar Hallerman describing Senator Isaacson's career as a dealmaker and him putting to work his dealmaking skills within this conversation. Um, He made uh, waves with a speech on the Senate floor during the most recent government shutdown, where he basically castigated both parties for not coming to a resolution on that. But ultimately, the resolution that was reached was President Trump agreeing to open the government with the intention of filing this emergency declaration, which stripping the politics out of it seems like it should be something that really concerns conservatives, uh, given that they issued so many withering criticisms of President Obama and his overreach during his administration. Ben, what do you think Senator Isaacson, what do you think he should be like working on in this situation? Do you think that his deal-making skills are the right fit for this discussion or what options does he have for him? I think on this particular issue, you would need to have a, a good relationship with both the the Democrats uh, and the moderates in the Senate, as well as with the president. And um, and I believe that Senator Isaacson has a good relationship with moderates and with some Democrats in the Senate. 
I don't know that that relationship is there with the president. I know that president is much closer with Senator Perdue and Senator Perdue plans on sticking with the president on this as opposed to trying to do some deal making. So um, I don't uh, I don't know if the um, if Senator Isaacson has both of those sides, both being the president and uh, and the moderates and Democrats in the in the Senate. Is there an issue here, though, for conservatives on just the concept of executive overreach? And I mean, it. If if President Obama had done this, there would be a party line or there would be a unanimous Republican vote in opposition. Don't you think, Ben? Yeah, I think that it, uh, there's a two part answer here. The first answer is that I think that universally conservatives would would be in favor of passing legislation that would uh, rein in executive authority. Um, I think that that's um, something I mean, I would personally would support that. I think most conservatives would support that at the same time. You have to play within the rules of the game, right? So in football, you may think that the that the kickoff should be taken out of the game, but while it's in the game, you have to prepare for it and play like it's in the game. We can't act like executive orders have not been given by President Obama and by previous presidents. And so I don't think it's wrong for the president to implement his authority the same way it has done by previous presidents. At the same time, I think that we should rein that authority in. So while I do, I would like that to be reined in. I have seen previous presidents do it. I think it's within the president's right. And so I think that, uh, I think that, so, so I'm supportive of him doing this because it is his right. At the same time, I'd be okay with that right being taken away uh, from the president. The The decision facing Purdue seems much different than this decision facing Senator Isaacson. Um, Purdue is up for reelection in 2020, uh, but he is also, his brand is one where he is much closer to the president um, but another senator, somewhat like Senator Purdue, is Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina. And if you're looking ahead to the 2020 Senate map, for Democrats to take control of the U.S. Senate, it seems likely that they would have to win at least two of three races in Iowa, North Carolina, and Georgia. Luke, it looks like it. I would be very surprised if Purdue ended up opposing uh President Trump on this, but Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina, who's also up in 2020, he's already announced that he will vote no. What do you think of the the calculus facing Purdue and Tillis uh, in terms of sticking with the president or looking to their reelection prospects? I think one, this is just a Purdue move. Like this is what Purdue would do. Like if you told me this was happening in the abstract, I would say Purdue would vote for the president, vote with the president. Because one, Purdue has pretty much always supported Trump as loudly as he possibly could. And then the second reason, you know, bringing in like the campaign element to this one, Georgia has not gone blue yet. And, you know, while I think we're a cycle or two, you know, like next cycle we could, or the following cycle we could, and then, you know, at a certain point it's going to be more and more likely. It hasn't happened yet. And as far as David Perdue has operated as a senator, he is not Johnny Isaacson, and he's made that very clear from day one. And he was—he's not Saxby Chambliss. They made that clear from day one. David Perdue has never sought a single Democrat to vote for him, and he's not going to start now. So I think, as far as a strategic decision on campaigning, he would gain almost nothing by opposing this because he's operating in, in such a way that I don't really see how he would be courting any Democratic votes, and so. You know, he, he has been a partisan from day one, and he's going to continue to do that. Um, so, 
yeah, I, I find the the political calculation of him voting for or voting against the emergency declaration actually makes less sense. For Tillis, it's a totally different you know thing because while he is you know pretty far to the right, he uh, doesn't go out of his way sometimes in the way that Purdue does. Megan, would I mean to what Luke is saying? Would progressives? cut some slack to either Purdue or Isaacson if they oppose Trump on this emergency declaration. I mean, the the article from Tamar Hallerman showed that despite Isaacson's deal-making proclivities, he votes with President Trump 91% of the time. Um, in Purdue's rate, I'm sure, is even a little bit higher. You know, that's going to be enough of a target for progressives in 2020, don't you think? So I can't speak for all progressives. I will say that when I'm keeping an eye on the senators, I do have a lot of respect for Johnny Isaacson. So I regularly listen to Johnny Isaacson's phone in town halls. And the thing that I think I appreciate about him the most is that he takes the time to listen to his constituents. And even if we don't agree, maybe not even 50% of the time, probably got less than that. um, I can appreciate that I... I do think he listens and I do think he does his research, whereas it feels with Purdue that he just rubber stamps anything that Trump decides to pull out of his behind. So me personally, yes, I give Isaacson some slack. I pay attention to what he does. And there are some things that he does that I do agree with. If a Democrat were to run against him when he's up for election, then that is a completely different ballgame. So the answer is no. The slack is not being cut to answer to answer your questions, well, Kyle. Uh, well, that's that's you know true to her though. I know many Democrats who vote for Isaacson right. because of how poor of a candidate. Well, right. well, and I, I think said, the question here is I on the vote. I did say it was a is the well. So I said it was a different ball game. I didn't say that I wouldn't vote. It depends on who he's running against, right? If he's running against somebody that I completely align with, then I would be a moron not to vote for the person I completely align with. But if he, he's running against somebody that I don't, then I would support Isaacson in office. You know, there's there's too many there's too many variables in there for me to tell you, like, yes, I'd vote for Isaacson. But I think the, the point here is on the question. The point here is on the question is, should they break from the president on this specific vote? Do you cut them slack? And so for let's take, for example, it was not just Isaacson, P- Purdue, who has been often supportive of the president. If he were to break from the president on this one, would he be cut some slack? And again, I think the answer is both on, on no. no, no, yeah. The the the, answer the, no. the answer for Purdue, at least for me, is no. He's his track record is against him. The answer for me for Isaacson is yes. Yeah, I think I think this is the core tenet of the problem of bipartisanship in a in a really polarized age. Is you know, I mean, very you can find individual instances of Republicans and Democrats working together on a lot of different things, mostly things that are not very divisive. But really, when it comes to whether or not being bipartisan, being a moderate will pay off for someone, you only reap that reward at the ballot box, whether or not it helps you get reelected or not. And so, you know, you see a lot of this from progressives criticizing conservatives. Why don't you break more with the president? You know, the president is violating your beliefs. He's doing crazy things in any number of areas. But like, if if Purdue voted against the president on the emergency declaration tomorrow, he would not win a Democratic vote, given his track record. And so this, I think, is somewhat uh, implicit in the criticism that Democrats have of Republicans in the Trump era, is that 
Republicans could break with the president, they could be more independent, but it's not going to win them Democratic votes. So why would you why would you do that? I think it depends because I think it can win them votes if they do it, uh, if it's cumulative. That and it can win you independent votes, but I, I would like to uh, protest, Kyle, because it's not you don't only be bipartisan so that you can get reelected. I would I would think many representatives that are bipartisan do it because one, they believe that that's a good outcome, but also two, and probably more importantly, uh, like they're working with the same people every day for years sometimes and being bipartisan and like meeting other people halfway is a way to get stuff done. And I, I know there's some firm exceptions, but most people run for elective office because they, they want to do something. And so being bipartisan is a, decently successful way especially you know in previous years of actually getting stuff done all right uh well that is going to be our show for the week just one more uh note before we go uh, there was some news that broke late today or broke this morning we we found out about it late today that uh the oversight committee in the u.s house is looking into uh, Georgia's elections in 2018, and they sent a bunch of document requests to Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger today. Um, so that's a developing thing that we will talk about in the future. But uh, it does look like following the hearing that a congressional committee had in Atlanta a few weeks ago, um, that the U.S. House, uh, the Democrats in the U.S. House at least, are interested in taking a harder look at 2018 elections in Georgia and allegations of voter suppression um, during that campaign. Uh, so we will follow that going forward. Um, but with that, I think we're going to leave it there for this week. Uh, so, uh, Ben, thanks for a, another fun episode of Peach Pot. Happy to be here. Megan, thanks for uh, showing off your cat during our recording. <laughs> thank you. And Nimbus says thank you for his his screenshot and he looks forward to seeing it on the peach pod social media and luke uh, thanks as always go dogs hey, go, go dogs. dogs all righty guys we will talk to y'all later that's our show for the week if you like what you heard share the show with a friend and go over to itunes and give us a rating or a review it really helps other people find our show we'll be back with another episode of peach pod next week until then take care y'all